Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Everybody's Fishing, we talk with Joe Gray, blogger and podcaster with Advanced Persistent Security. In this episode, Joe shares how you can mitigate the damage that can be caused by phishing and how white box pen testing relates to phishing overall. And lastly, we hit upon how to limit the damage insecurities within IoT devices. It was a great chat. I think you'll enjoy it. Welcome. Thanks for coming on. Just introduce yourself, your name, your company. I am uh, Joe Gray. I'm the principal blogger and podcaster with Advanced Persistent Security. I'm here at uh, Hack NYC, and I'm going to be talking uh, phishing for awareness today. Okay. Well, walk us through kind of what phishing for awareness might mean for people who aren't familiar with the topic. So if you have an email account, you've likely seen a phishing email. It's something that's trying to get a piece of data out of you or get you to do something like open the file, click the link, give your credit card data, something to that effect. What I'm talking about today is... I'm advocating for companies to run those types of engagements against their employees in a controlled manner to condition the employees to be cognizant of what they're opening and build the relationship so that employees could report things that they see that may be a little bit abnormal and ultimately bring the awareness of this is a big problem. This is what we need to do about it. Is this a legitimate email to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, I've heard some really creative ways that people are thinking about running phishing campaigns. I mean, certainly the the campaign itself is interesting, like how kind of how do you come up with cool emails, but even literally making it sort of like an inner office, inner department sort of mm-hmm. competition where people are like looking to perform really well against those exactly. metrics and as fun as March Madness is, right? No one wants to be the manager whose entire team fell for the fish. Yeah. But at the same time, if you have a manager who no one on their team fell for the fish, there may be something wrong as well because globally, Symantec through their ITSR, the uh, security report they put out every year, uh, the 2017 ITSR uh, speculates that 13% of all phishing emails are successful. So as with anything, we're not going to reach an absolute. We're not going to be 100% effective with training. Phishing attempts are not going to be 100% effective. You're not going to get phishing attempts to be 0% effective. It's just not feasible. So you're just trying to get it at such a level to where it's mitigated and people can report it to the incident response team or the security team is appropriate based on what your organization wants so that you can trigger incident response when necessary. Yeah. And we all sort of hear about phishing sort of in general. Okay. They asked for my credentials, whatever. I gave it to them. Sort of the strategies, understanding that obviously we want to drop down the number of people who respond to that, but also multi-factor is one sort of strategy. What else is what else is out there in terms of like assuring that even those individuals who do get phished, those credentials aren't necessarily usable? There are technical solutions out there, but having been a social engineering pen tester in a past life, I found ways to uh, get around a lot of those just based on where I get my email provider. So for example, if I pay for a cloud email service, I'll stay vendor neutral there. I don't want to give too much secret sauce. That may be trusted by any technical controls like Proofpoint or something called SPF, the Center Policy Framework, or DKIM, Domain Keys uh, Identity Management, or DMARC, uh, Domain Message Authentication and uh, Response uh, Compliance. You can get past all of that. So, and, and that's the big point I'm making. Even with a tool like Mimecast, you can get past these things if you're a persistent fisherman that takes the time to understand your organization that you're attacking. So that's why I heavily advocate awareness. And I accept the fact that someone's going to click it. It's just 
as security professionals, we have to say, we have these things in place to protect you. You need to do your part and report it to us so that we can take the actions. Because I don't want to punish a user that comes to me and says, I'm sorry, I clicked an email. Something executed my screen did something funny. They're telling me that. So I have context to go and perform incident response as opposed to waiting until everything gets ransomed and have to pay four or five Bitcoin to be able to get access to my systems again. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, those of us who sort of like watch ads and joke you public, it's like suddenly the hacker, you know, once you click that email within, I mean, sometimes within milliseconds stuff starts mm. to kick off, but sometimes it takes a lot longer for them. You know, they gain access and then they wait and see what happened. And there's a bell curve in terms of performance on that side Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And a, a good friend of mine from the Knoxville area, Adrian Sanabria, at RSA, he provided a talk called Killing the Pen Test. And he's advocating for less black box pen testing and more white box red teaming. At initial thought, you know, everybody's like, no, this is a terrible idea, blah, blah, blah. But when you break it down and we talk about dwell time, which I'm not one to really spout buzzwords, but dwell time is a real thing. And when, when an attacker is able to get in via phishing or whatever, a lot of times they sit and wait three, six, nine, 12 months before anything bad happens. And during that time, they're collecting information. They're understanding what is considered normal for this target, which effectively makes it a white box test. And then to look at pen testing versus red teaming, uh, the basically the difference between the two is pen testing, you're coming in and you're... Haroon Mir, and this is coming secondhand knowledge from Adrian, Haroon Mir said that pen testers have stopped emulating attackers. They just emulate other pen testers now. Red teamers, on the other hand, you have a specific objective. You want to be detected. You want to accomplish this. You want to test this specific control, this. And with that, that's a little bit more focused because, you know, for some attacks, the attacker is not trying to get domain admin. Sometimes they're just trying to get the keys to the kingdom and sneak right back out the door without having that kind of thing. Most pen tests are trying to get domain admin. I've been part of a pen test where uh, the objective was to get domain admin and the test stopped once we had it. Well, we didn't even have to do a port scan because we did a clever vishing scheme against uh, a C-level of the organization and we're able to get it that way. So, so it's like, right, we just won, right? We don't exactly. have to do much more. more so, so instead of you know spending 24 hours on this contract, we spent two and like another half hour for reporting. I'm curious sort of like what are the sort of metrics that you think are kind of interesting when you see organizations that are doing their kind of protection as well as their sort of analysis well, how are they sort of measuring both the potential vulnerabilities or sort of risks that they're undertaking as well as like the mitigation kind of elements? It kind of varies because you could have an organization that's very heavy into monitoring. They have a lot of protective measures in place, but they may be missing one specific thing. They may be investing very heavily in vulnerability management. They may be investing in firewalls, but their application security is garbage. And they put some web application up that allows someone to walk right in the door. So it, it could vary. I would say that Organizations that do security well are doing it ex exceptionally well. Those who are not doing it at all uh, are doing it exceptionally poorly. And then everybody else is pretty much a hodgepodge in between on varying levels of success. And how do you, when you see those, those folks that are doing it well, are they sort of measuring themselves against like one of the frameworks or the, the standards? I mean, certainly a lot of those standards kind of get, you know, sort of bandied about as like, you right. know, checklist compliance, but at least, and anything can be, right? You sort right. of go through the motions, but. And those companies, they acknowledge that compliance and security have their 
individual places. It comes down to the argument of compliance versus privacy versus security. And a good organization understands compliance has its place. That's for influencing the boardroom, really, because that's the language they speak. But then they also have a direct line of communication with the boardroom to understand that that's just the beginning that the word negligent could be tied to the company if they don't do the other following things. And that's where everything else comes into play. They'll, they'll have very verbose programs. They'll, they'll use documented standards like COBIT, NIST. Some will even use FISMA. Of course, we've got PCI, HIPAA, FFIEC, GDPR is coming. So I, I just jokingly say that GDPR is the winter and winter is coming <laughs> to get the Game of Thrones uh, nerd reference out there. But I'm interested, honestly, to see what GDPR is going to do to security as a whole worldwide because the way the regulation is written is it has global authority to penalize a company up to 4% of their global annual revenue per occurrence. So for large Fortune 10 companies, they're scrambling. They're terrified. They're shaking in their boots because it's not just them. It's their vendors. It's their customers. It's their partners. It's everybody that they have any controlling relationship with. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's good and there's bad, right? Like I think the certainly the European authority could just simply use it as a as a weapon, as like as a great kind of traffic cop to just start writing tickets and run up a lot of revenue. My hope is that that's not there, that that's not the goal of why they put that regulation right. in, is that it really, that a lot of organizations really aren't, weren't taking privacy seriously, weren't, and we're taking security seriously. And so they Absolutely. said, you, you know, get religion on this or, and to put up that very large potential fine, we've all sat in those sort of rooms where I don't really know what the risk will be. I don't know what the potential loss will be. So we can sort of kind of pass the buck along in terms of Absolutely. Like not, Absolutely. not doing things. So, And with that, I would like to believe that this is a, a draconian measure that will be further refined as time goes on. My hope is that it's going to get enough of the attention and then subsequent revisions will come out to not necessarily make it any simpler or lessen the impact, but put a little bit more logic in it. Because honestly, this has been a long time coming. Yeah. A lot of people in the US say that we need something like that here. Yeah. There's another directive from the EU. So understand it's a directive, not a law, as yeah. in a regulation that directs that all member states come up with their own regulation dealing with um, mandatory data breach uh, notification mm -hmm. and participation in uh, the European Union uh, incident response efforts, the CERT. So okay. that's another one that's on the horizon as well. And if GDPR weren't the monster it is in play like it is right now, we would be hearing a lot about the other directive. Yeah. It's sort of like we're going to get through this tidal wave and, and then we'll see the other one on the horizon. Right. What about – just to sort of switch gears a little bit, what are sort of the kind of threats that you are most concerned about, whether that's individual threats or areas where you're sort of worried about on the horizon or hitting now? There's a lot of stuff out there. IoT just terrifies me because you know we, we all know that the S in IoT stands for security. Yeah. And the thing is, you have these things. You have Echoes, Dots, uh, Alexa, Google Home, all these things in people's houses that connect to things that you have smart ovens, smart refrigerators, blenders, water heaters. I, I saw a Bluetooth-controlled water heater. I was like, why? Why? I mean, I could understand like – a barbecue or a smoker being Bluetooth enabled or Wi-Fi enabled because, I mean, it's the fall, it's Saturday if you're in the South, you know, college football, or if you're anywhere else, it's Sunday. 
you've got your brisket, your ribs, your whatever on, you know, you're consuming some adult beverages and you don't feel like getting off the couch until it's time to eat. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can control it via your phone. That's cool. But what happens when someone's walking by with a device that could be as small as a deck of cards in their pocket and they take over your entire home network and it just so happens that your wife's in the home office uh, working on some accounting stuff for you uh, and just happens to be logged into your, your bank's website? What happens then? And I think a lot of companies aren't looking at that. Like recently, I just um, got my first CVE, Common Vulnerability and Exposure, uh, to a home wireless router. And the security on it was just so weak. For example, it had no HTTPS support. It truncated all passwords to 15 characters. I verified I can log in with the 17-character password I entered and the 15-character password it truncated it to. You don't have to know the password to change the password. And then it passes. When you change the password, it changes it, passes it. To the, to the application on the back end in clear text. When you log in, it does it via base64 encoding, which is not much better. In fact, I wouldn't say it's any better, but it might stop someone that's really not that persistent. But while we're still making mistakes like that, it's hard to even fathom what nation states or advanced malware or advanced actors could even do. I, I think we need to go back to the basics, really. It's almost to the point to where I would say, let's just take a dry erase board and wipe it all off and say, we've got a clean slate, let's do a do-over. Yeah, I mean, although <laughs> people are, are lining up at, at Best Buy or ordering off Amazon and whatever sort of the cheapest, easiest thing that they oh, can absolutely. buy. The router that I attacked uh, was $29 on Amazon. Yeah. The whole reason I got it was because I, I, I'm thinking about doing uh, the offensive security wireless professional. It's a wireless pen test cert. Okay. And it's the one that they recommended that you get. They didn't recommend it because of the application. They recommended it because of its implementation of wireless. It's easy to penetrate. <laughs> the irony there is just amazing. As an industry, we focus a lot on the business. We focus on how to protect business. We need to take a step back and look at how we protect people. And to tie this back into my presentation today, I'm an advocate for protecting people because if you teach people how to protect themselves and their families, they're going to take that home. They're going to apply it. They're going to think about it and they're going to bring it back to work and do it better at work. Okay. So, you know, you've got the audience. What would be the kind of top three, five things that they should think about? Let's say they are, I mean, is it is it just really avoid making their, we'll start with the house. Like, is it avoid just buying IoT devices or how do you know what's good and what's not? Segment your IoT devices. So for example, you have, uh, you set up a second wireless network, put all of them on the same wireless network, put a few networking rules in place to where it can't communicate with other things. It's just like in a business environment, we segregate the card holder data environment from everything else in a PCI environment. Why not do something similar at home? So like in my router, you know, I have the router from a large cable or mm -hmm. I, I won't say which one. I already know. I, you know, they provide like the 5G and the normal mm -hmm. wireless network. You would just throw one on one and, and the others on the other. I would put the router downstream of it. So have all your, all of your regular stuff on one network. I would say on the main one, the one going to the ISP, then have another router connected to that, put it on a different channel. It okay. would still be the same frequency. Put it on a different channel so they don't try to interfere too much. And put all your IoT stuff on that one. Okay. Then you can set up routing rules saying that you can only access this network from this system, just like using a jump box. Yeah. Something to that effect. And then don't allow them to communicate back to the other things. Okay. So literally just, just slice and dice. Yeah. The other things I would recommend, use a password manager. Don't reuse passwords. Subscribe to Have I Been Pwned so you know when your passwords are null and void. 
when you don't use the same password on every website, you only have to change it for one site when it gets breached, not every site. Take your email seriously. If Google's telling you this may be a, a scheme or a scam or a fish, they've got a lot of intelligence to prove it because look at how many Gmail users we have. So, I mean, just be be cautious about what you're doing. Uh, I really hate to sound cliche, but stop, think, and do it. You know, be secure. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm sort of, as I look forward, right? I mean, part of the issue for individuals is that the some of the data that some of the data that businesses use is relatively like available, right? Like, oh, easily. Like social security numbers, address, right? Like all of those sorts of things. I'm wondering if you know we're we're quickly moving to a place where the banks are like not they're not going to take those basic Absolutely. data points. Well, I mean. For me, uh, as a social engineer, for context, I won the DerbyCon Social Engineering Capture the Flag this last year. So I've I've got a little experience with this. All of that's considered open source intelligence. Me going out and finding out what your mother's maiden name was, that's open source intelligence. I can find that out via your Facebook or genealogy websites. I can find out where you went to school via LinkedIn or other things. It's all out there. And, And I think financial institutions and other sensitive entities, to put it that way, they should be looking at other questions. Honestly, all, all my password reset questions, they all come, they, they're just randomly generated strings out of my password manager. So my mother, she has a maiden name. That is, I that is what it. you put in. <laughs> no, her maiden name is like a 16 character random generated string. I mean, she's even got an ampersand in her maiden name. <laughs> How many people can say that about their mother? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you can just sort of start to be creative in terms of your own responses. Oh, absolutely. And then you can minimize what you put out there as well. Uh, You could put deceptive technologies out there. You could do disinformation. Those are all great ideas. I have another talk I'm giving, uh, I believe, Thursday at uh, Source Boston on the topic. It's called Decepticon. It's it's already been given a couple of times. It's out there on on YouTube and Iron Geek's website if anybody wants to take a look at it. But it's about using deceptive technologies and disinformation to secure yourself. Hmm. Yeah. What are some of the highlights from that? Be very cautious about what you post to social media. Yeah. Don't altogether avoid social media. Uh, control what's there. And make sure that you can that you're routinely checking to see what's out there about you. Uh, if you feel so uh, inclined, opt out of all the things you can opt out of. If you really want to be secure, create a few bogus accounts in your name with other uh, with pictures that aren't you. Yeah, I think those are great ideas, and we'll definitely link to that uh, that presentation in the notes for this. How about um, you know? I think one of the areas this year that has kind of gotten sort of cyber attacks and sort of some of the issues about privacy kind of to another level have been some of the things that happened around the election, mm-hmm. right? What and I know that's an area that you've kind of been involved with as well and interested in. So, so walk us through kind of what you're seeing on that side. So. I have not personally touched any specific evidence to state one way or another whether there was any collusion or anything in involved with the election. Based on what I've read, I think it's a reasonable person could presume that there was some level of disinformation from trolls and bots uh, to lean that direction. But I'm not sure how much influence that truly had on the American populace. Because for us to say that one party won or lost the election through the use of disinformation and trolls, that's really devaluing the level of knowledge and common sense of the American people. So, I mean, is it possible? Yes. Could other countries have tampered with our election? Yes. 
I uh, watched a lot of the uh, Voting Machine Village unfold at uh, Hack West back in March, and they were able to access things, but to my knowledge, they weren't able to change any votes. So if anything, it's voter databases, which again makes for some interesting targeting, but maybe not necessarily to sway how you vote, but more like sway how your credit score is. Yeah, although I think you'll miss my talk today, but we touch upon a little bit kind of the problems if you do start messing with the registration systems. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Um, because ultimately what – so even if they tampered with things, the biggest thing it's going to do is create doubt. Yeah. And that right there is the most – that for the people of a country to doubt their government is the biggest weapon another adversary could use against them. Yeah. Sort of create – sort of lack of cohesion. When people start using terms like double speak, think speak, and comrade <laughs> as a byproduct, that's that's when we kind of have to get a little bit concerned. Uh, <laughs> How about some of the sort of unique things that are happening in different states? I know different states are sort of approaching some of these issues in um, perhaps troubling ways. Some states are doing it very well. Some other states, some peach states in the South aren't doing so peachy. Yeah. They've got some legislation currently sitting on the governor's desk uh, in the form of State Bill 315 that uh, effectively would make security research illegal. And it came across because someone was able to find the Georgia election database on the internet publicly. And when they disclosed it, then he was seen as a criminal. And it's like, I disclosed it. I'm not misusing this. And I, I'm not the person who found it, but I know of the person. And then ultimately, other things aside that I'll just leave as is, they, of course, in a way consistent with government, they had to have a knee-jerk overcompensating reaction. And this bill is that uh, I know a lot of people uh, in, in the metro area, uh, guys like Xavier Ash, uh, Frank Rietta, Scott Jones, uh, Kate Bennett have all done amazing things with trying to uh, talk to the people and the legislators. Uh, they've, they've had some time with the governor's office to help with this. But the problem is even whether the governor signs it or doesn't, if he doesn't explicitly veto it, it goes into effect. And I think today is the do or die day. Wow. So we'll be watching the news. Yeah. And I mean, you'd, you'd think that we would <laughs> – you know, that we would understand that sort of like keeping things behind closed doors and trying to trying to lock up our secrets, systems, whatever they are, would be understood to be not exactly the, the best way to secure it, right? We're in the social media generation. Nothing can be hit. Even you could put behind top flight encryption, but all it takes is someone to come in, take a selfie with it, and it's on the internet forever. So uh, it's definitely an interesting time that we live in. Sometimes I, I fear that we're in the 11th month of 1983. Sometimes I fear that the temperature is approximately uh, 449 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> Sometimes it's uh, the world is a little bit brave and new, but all dystopia aside, we've also got to look at the positives as well yeah. uh, because positives exist. It's just unfortunately positive media stories just don't typically make the news because people don't watch things for feel good. That's what sitcoms are for. Yeah. I mean, I think the part of the reason we launched this podcast was to kind of at least try and go a couple of levels deep enough that we could really talk about issues with the sort of full perspective that they deserve. What do you see sort of on the positive side of the of the scale? What, what are you seeing that you're sort of encouraged by, think is really potentially moving the needle from a security or a privacy perspective? Password managers are becoming more of the norm. Uh, we have bug bounty programs. I can go have conversations with non-security people and they understand what I'm talking about because it's came so far to the, the mainstream. People are more apt to ask questions now 
we're not seen quite as the smelly nerds that we used to be, the whole perspective is changing and in many ways for the better. Yeah. I think that cultural shift is, you know, it's touchy, it's feely. It's not perhaps what a lot of engineers are sort of most kind of comfortable talking about. We always want to sort of seek a a technical solution. How do we fix this with code or with hardware or whatever? But if you can change the perspective, change the sort of perception of things, that is incredibly effective. Absolutely. Joe, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. This was great. Thanks for having me. 